Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The Atlanta trio Omni has created a minimalist post-punk sound that has gained them international recognition. Now, Omni frontman Philip Frobos is flexing his creative muscles in a different direction with his debut novel, vague enough to satisfy. The book will be released in conjunction with Frobos's first solo record of the same name. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes sits down with Philip Frobos to discuss words and music. First... <laughs> That's the sound of an Atlanta Braves game. And the man playing the organ? Matthew Kaminsky. He just celebrated his 1,000th game performance for the Braves. And to commemorate this wonderful milestone, Matthew has released a new vinyl recording, L.A. Connection. He joins me now via Zoom. Matthew Kaminsky, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Always a joy. October 1st marked your 1,000th game playing the organ for the Braves. How would you sum up that experience throughout these years? Well, it's been a long time. So this is my 13th season. It took me that long to get to 1,000 games. And it's been um, quite a journey. I first started off at Turner Field back when the Braves were playing there in 2009. And it's taken me to uh, Truist Park over on the, I guess, northwest side of town. Yeah, it's, it's been a good run so far. So hopefully I'll have uh, some more more games left in me. Oh, hopefully indeed. And you're being very modest. Matthew, because for many of us, your playing is color commentary, and the interactive way you involve fans is such a delight. I should add, you have over 21,000 Twitter followers. 
Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, because my first season, I had started the Twitter account. And, you know, it kind of just grew over time. And now it seems like all 21,000 people want their favorite song to be heard at the game. <laughs> <laughs> so no doubt you have someone tending to all of that while you're playing. No, actually, I've got my iPad right next to the organ, actually kind of on top of the organ. So I see in real time as the tweets kind of roll in. Now, unfortunately, I don't have enough playing time to, to do all the requests, but I, I still manage to do a handful of requests for each game. Speaking of commemorating the 1,000th game, you released this new vinyl record called L.A. Connection. Why did you want to release this album on vinyl? Well, it's something I've actually never done with my music. I've actually been on vinyl before recording for other artists, but um, this is actually my first you know, official vinyl release, and I've always been a fan of vinyl. So I have, believe it or not, a, probably over 3,500 LP records in my house right now. My, my, <laughs> I have, my. you know, I have probably... I think five turntables as well. So um, you have more than WABE has. <laughs> well, it's it's been a um, probably a twenty five year journey of collecting here. So I'm definitely a big fan of vinyl and love going to record stores and you know searching through the bins and such. What is it you love about vinyl? You know, a lot of what I listen to, especially kind of the specialized jazz that I listen to, has never been released on CD or digital format. So a lot of times I'm looking for my gems that you could only find on vinyl. And um, a lot of times, too, I, I find things that are interesting that only will maybe cost a dollar. So if I'm looking through a dollar bin, it's not something I would have normally bought, say, for a $15 CD, but I'm likely to just purchase the $1 vinyl record for. And learn something from it. Yeah, it's the thrill of the hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I enjoy just kind of the smell of it. And when you have a really good vinyl without scratches in it, it, it sounds really good, you know, depending on your stereo. But um, to me, it sounds really good. Oh, I know several audiophiles who much prefer vinyl. The album features two musicians, Jeff Hamilton and Bruce Foreman. How were you three connected? Well, Jeff Hamilton and Bruce Foreman both are on the West Coast. So the title LA Connection actually comes from me recording this album in Los Angeles. Jeff and Bruce have been mainstay veterans of the California jazz scene for, for decades. Jeff kind of, these days, he's known as being um, Diana Krall's drummer. So he's been on tour with her and he just recorded, I think, with Michael Buble as well. So he's definitely a, um, a heavy hitter in jazz. And Bruce Foreman has been recording since, you know, the late 70s and he's been around forever. He's recorded with uh, Bobby Hutcherson, the jazz vibraphonist, as well as Richie Cole, who is a wonderful jazz uh, alto saxophonist. Um, actually, they both were on a Mark Murphy album together. Mark Murphy was a well-known jazz um, vocalist. Um, so they were both legends of the Los Angeles jazz community. And I had known Bruce 
from playing in California a couple of years ago, I played near San Jose in a town called Los Gatos. And I had hired Bruce as my guitarist for that gig. And uh, we've been friends ever since. So it was, it was a good uh, connection of uh, musicians for me to get to play with. Mm. For those who are not familiar with the marvelous sound of jazz organ, would you describe its style and how you make it your own? Jazz organ was really popularized by Jimmy Smith in the um, late 50s, 60s. And the sound of it kind of comes from church. So there's a little bit of a gospel church to it. But um, in jazz, it could go a lot of different ways. And what, what Jimmy Smith did was he brought a little bit of Charlie Parker and a little bit of kind of soul jazz, like uh, Art Blakey, into playing jazz on the organ. And that's the sound that I really kind of grew to love. I, I love kind of those old blue note recordings from the 60s with Jimmy Smith and Kenny Burrell was on guitar on a lot of those tracks. And it's a sound that, you know, that has always kind of captured my imagination. So as a jazz organist, I get to also be the bass player in the band because a lot of times we run a bass line with our left hand and our feet together as well as improvising with our right hand and playing chords. So it's almost like you're a full orchestra. So it's, it's a very exciting style of playing for me. Oh, that's fantastic. And I remember the first time we met connecting with you over our shared appreciation of Jimmy Smith. H. Johnson teases me about Every Jimmy Smith recording he airs, he says, I'm doing this one for you, Lois. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. But it is just that quality you described about echoes of church, the gospel sound, the essential blues feel that underlies it. it it's, it's marvelous. Yeah, it's a really a driving type of music. And, you know, the artists that I like really kind of drive the music. And it kind of, the word I like to use is grooves, kind of presents a groove and really tap, makes your feet tap and uh, puts a smile on your face. And uh, to me, it gives me chills even just, you know, talking about it. Mm-hmm. You do sound like a jazz musician when you say groove, Matthew. <laughs> Of course, you are a jazz musician. Let's talk about the selections on the record. It begins with the song, Sir John. Elton John? No, actually, this is an old Blue Mitchell composition. Blue Mitchell is a jazz trumpeter. I first heard it on a recording by one of my favorite organists. You know, we mentioned Jimmy Smith being one of my favorites, but another favorite is a guy named Don Patterson. And Don Patterson was was definitely even more entrenched in bebop. I would I don't know if I would say more than Jimmy Smith, but he was definitely the bebop organist of the 60s and the 70s. 
And Don Patterson had recorded Sir John, and a couple of the tracks on my record are from um, his catalog. So that's my little uh, homage to Don Patterson. Great. Sul Ce Soir translates to Alone Tonight. And French composer Paul Durand originally wrote the song Je suis sul ce soir, I'm so all alone. How did you take this 20th century French song and arrange it to sound as though it might have originally been scored for organ, guitar, and drums? Well, I'm actually a big Django Reinhardt fan. So in addition Ah. to me playing the organ, I also play piano. Um, I teach and play a lot of piano, but I also play the accordion. And Sol Se Soir is one of those gypsy jazz standards that pretty much all kind of Django Reinhardt-influenced guitar players know of. And it's a song that I've been playing with my gypsy jazz outfit for, for many years. And I thought it was... It was a good fit for the organ sound as well. So that's kind of my little homage to Django Reinhardt. Pay tributes to so many folks on this recording. Boop Bop Bing Bash <laughs> is a blue song written by saxophonist George Braith. Why did you want to conclude the album with this song? So that one, um, one of my other influences on the organ was a guy named Billy Gardner. And Billy Gardner is not very well known in the jazz world, but us organists really, I guess, do know about him. And he had recorded with George Braith on this song, Boop Bop Bing Bash. I think I first had it on a compilation maybe 20 years ago, and it always kind of caught my ear. So that's one of those songs that's always been in my book, meaning that whenever I would have a gig, I would, I would show the other guys the music to this one and you know try to make a good arrangement out of it. So that one I've been playing for, I would say, at least 25 years now. compliment the art on the album cover. It just, it feels so good to look at it. It's varying shades of blue, which certainly reflects the blues influence, but there's also this very happy feeling L.A. connection. You have palm trees and the Hollywood sign, that iconic sign coming out of the keyboard. Who did the artwork? So that's actually from a middle school slash high school friend of mine that we've always kept in touch with. His name is Derek Chamberlain, and he's done a lot of my graphic art um, work over the years. And what I wanted him to do on this one is to kind of signify my travel to Los Angeles for this recording. So I had traveled there at the beginning of 2020 before the pandemic, and actually 
while I was there, in, in addition to recording, I went to the music convention called NAMM, the National Association of Music Merchants. So I wanted to kind of signify that trip with this album artwork. So while I was in Los Angeles, I went to the Griffith Observatory, which you actually use, you see the kind of the observatory and the artwork, which is right in front of the Hollywood sign. And then the um, surfboard kind of signifies me going to Huntington Beach for a day and going visiting the ocean. Did you surf? Unfortunately, no, I, um, I'm not brave enough to do that. <laughs> well, I also think January, the Pacific Ocean isn't all that warm, even in Southern California. You know what? It wasn't, but there were people out there. I read that. You also have been teaching organ, piano, and accordion lessons online. What's it been like during the pandemic to teach music virtually? It's a little bit different. So I had taught a little bit before the pandemic online, mainly to adults. But what I had to really kind of get accustomed to is teaching my younger students online. Because in a, in a piano lesson or an organ lesson, there's a lot of interaction of me showing the students where to put their hands or how to, you know, how to sit. Or if, if I want them to play something in the music, I have to point to it on the page. Now, online through Zoom or through FaceTime, I had to really get used to using those kind of directions with carefully chosen words. So I had to tell them, can you point to measure number five? And then I had to have them point their cameras to their keyboards so I could see how their fingers were doing. So it's a little bit more of a challenge with the younger students, but I think they've gotten, I guess, accustomed to my style of teaching. Organist Matthew Kaminsky, he just celebrated his 1,000th game performing for the Atlanta Braves. His new vinyl record is out now, L.A. Connection. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Atlanta musician and author Philip Frobos. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta trio Omni has created a minimalist post-punk sound that has gained them international recognition. 
not to mention a record deal with Sub Pop. Now, Omni frontman Philip Frobos is flexing his creative muscles in a different direction with his debut novel, Vague Enough to Satisfy. The book is being released in conjunction with Frobos' first solo record of the same name. City Light senior producer Kim Droves recently caught up with the Renaissance man over Zoom. Here's Frobos explaining why he wanted to write a book. I was always intrigued with creative writing, even when I was in high school and all that, but it wasn't until Omni was spending more time on tour in Europe. So I kind of realized that in my 20s, I spent a lot of time drinking and socializing and not doing the reading that I should have been doing. And all of a sudden we had this band and um, I found myself in Europe with no cell phone service for long, long hours in this van with nothing to do. And luckily I also don't get carsick when I read, which is a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I was gifted that, but I'm very happy with it. So I just started catching up on classics and non-classics and whatever, you know, any, anything that people would throw at me. Some of the big ones were like Hemingway and Joan Didion, DeLillo, Sarta, Camus, you know, just, it's funny because it is somebody who has may have been behind on their like great worldly reads. It's almost like hearing the Beatles for the first time for some of them. So Mm -hmm. it just was kind of blowing my mind. And I think somewhere along the way, when we were just driving, it just kind of dawned on me that I could try and exercise where I just give it a shot and just do our version of what I'm reading at the time or something. So that was, uh, I guess, the first moment that I was like, I think I might have a book in me. And how much of yourself did you end up putting in this book? I don't, I don't want to make assumptions, although it seems like it might be quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it is. It's definitely an incredible amount. But as far as like, fiction to nonfiction, 50-50 or 60-40 or something like that. Like there's a lot of dramatic stuff that definitely did not happen in real life. But as far as the character goes, I mean, I'm kind of just writing from my own voice, which yep. I guess you you already know. <laughs> but every, everyone says, write what you know. So, so you did. It's a good and place to start, right? Yep, absolutely. What's a good synopsis? The main character, Robert, is... At the end of a tour in Leipzig, Germany, and has a has a little downtime with his new German friends and his bandmates, and then his fiance will be meeting him for a little vacation in Berlin, and then some hijinks and drama ensue as they move their life back to Atlanta, Georgia. So, so much of it does take place in Atlanta. And would you read the passage that describes a little bit about the Atlanta Beltline? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So this comes from the chapter, Suit Yourself or Peeking Over the Canopy. The trail west was closed for construction. So they rode east, which would eventually turn north. The path was lightly covered with gravel in addition to sand, dirt, and red clay. 
Riding along the dirt felt good. There were vast amounts of undeveloped land, fields surrounded with tall trees and loads of brush. It was hard to imagine being in a major American city if one couldn't see the skyline peeking over the canopy. In Atlanta, you didn't have to go far to find the country and some much needed nature. Even in Midtown, the trail used to be wild and mangy, lush and green, a distant dream now flooded with condominiums and, quote, easy access. The Beltline was developed over an old railway that formed a perimeter around the city for easy transfers, a way freights could avoid downtown. It was decommissioned for years until someone picked up an old Georgia Tech master's thesis. The student had the idea to turn it into a public trail and green space, linking several parts of the city that were previously distant. People love it. The Midtown section, paved and deluxe, was flooded with citizens and their dogs, bicycles, and baby strollers all day, every day. The businesses and real estate around it made a killing, which led to the condos, mixed-use developments, and some broken promises, sustainability and displacement being the greatest offenders. Nothing's perfect should be Atlanta's city planning motto, but the trail was pretty damn pleasant and much needed. Gosh, that speaks to Atlanta. City planning does tend to be baffling at times. Yeah, I feel like if I were to just somehow be able to become ridiculously absurdly rich, my like big moment would be like, I'm going to make Marta right for Atlanta. Just donate all of this money to create ideal public transit that is actually intuitive and makes sense for what everybody needs. That is the dream bubble, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's a really good example of the representation of Atlanta in the book. But I'd like to go back to the very beginning and to an overall topic that comes up a lot. Sure. The book starts out in a hole. Would you (laughs) describe the hole? And let's talk about the significance of it. So the hole is about a little more than four feet deep. So I could stand in it and my head would pop out. Um, as I'm about five foot four. Yeah, the guys had a day off and their driver slash best friend had the idea of just digging a hole in his garden that could be a tunnel, possibly to another garden or just to anywhere. And they just spent their evening sweating it out and digging this hole together. And the idea of just having something to physically do that is constructive and seemingly to an end really seems to bond everyone. Indeed. I guess I should tell you that that is something that is autobiographical and did happen with our friend George in Leipzig. He did indeed have a Schreiber garden, which is the uh, gardens that you can purchase in Germany by lease. And we would go there and... He had already actually started to dig the hole. The idea was that he and his friend who had a garden, one garden down from his, so there was one garden in between his friend and his garden. They both wanted to dig holes to connect um, their gardens. And uh, we obviously thought this idea was absurd, but we were like, we'll help you. The crazy thing is the other guy's garden, like he went and showed us, the other guy's hole. And that guy went down like probably like 10 feet. Like it was a scary hole. That he... <laughs> and, like indeed and... a vertical grave. 
yeah yeah like for real we kind of told george like maybe you shouldn't do this because <laughs> it's very dangerous but it sounds like fun i don't know so anyways <laughs> that's pretty funny would you consider it safe to say that jealousy and overconsumption are two things that dominate the book definitely jealousy especially is kind of just coping with being jealous and finding ways to move beyond that which is you know a huge obstacle that we all face or you know most of us face whether or not we acknowledge it when i first wrote the book i held back a lot because I knew that a lot of people were going to be like, this is you. So like, what the, f you know, <laughs> and then I had a, a really great friend of mine, uh, Cyrus Shamir. He was in the, the band, the NEC. He um, did a read of the book and he kind of just was like, you need to lean into this. <laughs> it seems like you're kind of shielding yourself or something. So I went back and did a overhaul. And in that overhaul, I went to places in the last five or 10 years where maybe some of the more dark places and thoughts that I've had with re relationships current and previous and documented them. I think a huge dilemma with our general ego, and I don't know if it's just this edition of society, but everybody, a friend of mine likes to say, what every, what every American wants is preferential treatment. That's what I guess Homer, that's a Homer Simpson quote. And I don't know if it 100% applies to this, but I feel like everybody wants to be like, well, every single person, you know, just has to be held to these super high standards, except for when I want to do something, you know, like whatever. Nobody wants to hold themselves to the standards they hold the world to. And I think Robert, he had to face that. There's definitely growth within Robert when it comes to some of those jealousy themes. But towards the end of the book, bandmate Danny kind of gives you a, a bird's eye view of, hey, dude, this is what you look like to the outside world and the problems <laughs> that you might be creating. And you should probably pay attention to that. And one of the things that he brings up, I feel like, goes hand in hand with jealousy, which is the theme of social flirting and commitment and what is cheating and what is just making a new human connection. And it's all so shady. And I wasn't <laughs> quite sure where you or Robert landed with those feelings. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the huge question and I guess here's where there's some correlations between me and Robert is that I am recently married and we've been married for um, three years actually but I think trying to figure out what it meant to still be a musician and still be a bartender and still be talking to people who may or may not be interesting in romantic ways and what's okay and what's not. I don't know, especially since those careers are careers that kind of flirtations kind of built into it. Will you lean into that for me? What do you mean? So I guess, I don't know if everybody would agree with this, but we used to like to joke that like being a bartender or I, I mean, or working in a coffee shop or whatever, which are, you know, things that I've done in my time in the city is that you're only like, a few degrees away from prostitution, like 
because you're kind of just throwing it all out there, like your personality for people and you're engaging them and putting on this show and hoping that you're going to get the money at the end that will be proportionate to the amount that you give. And with certain guests, you may lean further and further into the gray area that can be sexual in a verbal way or whatever. I mean, even if it's you're not actually saying explicitly saying anything, it's it's just kind of what you're there for. They come in to have this interaction with you. Does that make sense? It does. Um, I've worked in the restaurant industry. I understand what you're saying about needing to perform for people and just make sure that you are liked and are making them happy. The idea that it comes back to sexuality, I can't help but personally believe that's more of a choice. And the line in your book where I think it's um, it's either your fiance or Danny says, um, not everything can be sexy. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it just depends on, it's definitely a personal choice for sure. And I think that some people are very good at just being purely business. I think it honestly is case to case with personalities too. There's a part in the book where Robert is likening having a night alone on his own in a major city as to what it's like to get like a great night's sleep or something like that, like rejuvenating or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that it may not correlate directly with it, but I might be that kind of person. And Robert might be that kind of person that needs those kinds of evenings and interactions. And, you know, whether or not it's devious is a, is one thing, but just kind of genuinely lending your ear to another person that you think is interesting. You get a lot from it. Understood. Well, I connected a lot with that. I love talking to strangers and I've often been misinterpreted Mm -hmm. because that's what happens sometimes when you're really friendly. And Mm -hmm. it was interesting to read all of that from a male point of view. Yeah, that's so nice to hear. Like, I mean, that's been something that's kind of been happening to me since I was like a a teenager. Like I remember even when we were just throwing little punk shows in downtown Gainesville, Georgia, like some girls would be at our show with, you know, with their friends and with people. And I would just remember who they were and say hi. And and they'd be like, don't flirt with me or whatever. Or like, well, it's not like that. I'd be like, well, I'm just saying hi. I don't know. Anyways. So you know I, what I'm saying? I feel I like totally being a friendly person, you, you, you get kind of thrown into some things. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. Whatever. Yeah. So much of it has to do with the intention. And speaking of intention, there's a (laughs) character in the book that you only refer to as the sculptor. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah. So the sculptor, she is constantly traveling and working on her own art and very well-spoken and friendly, but, you know, can sometimes be condescending in ways. Who is she to Robert? I think to Robert, he loves running into her and bumping into her and hearing what she has to say. And um, I think he's just very fascinated with her. He likes her. Well, gosh, it's complicated because he doesn't like her because she's like kind of presumptuous and like pretentious. But then the attention that she pays him, it kind of mesmerizes him. And I think he cares for her in, in a sense that he feels like they're on some kind of similar path. Yet there's a line there 
Danny again with his bird's eye view points out some secrecy that Robert displays when making plans with her. Why do you think that is? Part of the secrecy and making plans with her is that he knows that Danny wouldn't approve of him hanging out with someone like that alone because Danny knows that he's a he's married man at this point. I guess then that just reveals that he knows that he shouldn't be hanging out with her. Also, he's kind of grappling with the style of art that she does and how bodacious she is in public. Maybe that doesn't quite reflect or work with what he does. I'm not sure exactly why he lies, but it's one of those like easy lies that makes makes a lot of sense in the moment. Mm-hmm. Atlanta author and musician Philip Frobo speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes about his debut novel and solo album, Vague Enough to Satisfy. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's good to have you along. If you're just tuning in, we've been listening to Atlanta musician and author Philip Frobo speak with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes. Frobos's new novel, Vague Enough to Satisfy, is being released in conjunction with his first solo record of the same name. Here, Frobos discusses the inspiration behind the chapter, An Eleventh-Story Deluge of Water. That is another um, autobiographical moment where I was um, driving to Georgia Tech to meet Emily for lunch and... It was just, it was terrifying. Basically, I pulled up in my car onto uh, Fifth Avenue in Midtown, and all of a sudden there was just this incredibly loud, just slapping or smacking of the pavement. I, I, I didn't know what happened. And I looked and I saw this, this homeless guy who was like in rags and had like some of his belongings. He was just like chilling by this building. And where he was hanging out, it was absurd that somebody would be upset about it. There was maybe the service garage entry for the building and then nothing for the rest of the block. Like the main entrance was around the corner on the other, on Peachtree. But somebody had taken a big bucket of water and just dumped it over the rail onto him. And I mean, there's no way that this was a mistake because I don't know who dumps, you know, massive amounts of liquid out of their 11th story apartment anymore. Yeah, nobody. And it just, it resonated with me in this weird kind of take what you will from this moment uh, way. So I put it in the book. I had just finished writing the European part and I was going to start the American part. And I was like, this seems like a really great way to start the American journey. It stuck with me too. One of the other themes is just growing out of your 20s. 
and Mm -hmm. maybe even settling down if you want to use that term. The phrase Saturn returns comes up. For those unfamiliar with that phrase, it refers to an astrological event that takes place as people leave their 20s, usually happening somewhere between when you're 27 and 29 years old. Experts say it brings immense change into people's lives, sometimes chaos, but don't take it from me. If you want to learn more about Saturn Returns, there is a ton of information out there. Just Google it. But Philip, I was wondering if you personally experienced something like that when you were around 29 years old. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, between 28 and 30 were, was an incredible shift in my life. Like I basically went from being what I thought I should be to being what I wanted to be, which is, I guess, the most ideal situation. To give you some context, I was working as a full-time bartender and previously a business owner. I was running an espresso catering company for a little bit. And I was in this relationship where I was not very happy and not very honest. I just wasn't doing any of the things that were like good for myself or for my partner. And I kind of had this, I realized I needed to get out of it. And I was making music with Frankie, which was going to become Omni. And we were starting to do that. And like all of a sudden it was like, I sold my business broke up with my girlfriend at the time. I stopped working at the bar and Omni got a record deal in Chicago with Trouble in Mind. And we just started touring and it was this just exhilarating experience. And I started seeing Emily, who is my my wife now. And Emily and I kind of explored the subject of just transparency and total honesty. And it was just the most freeing thing to talk about. And it just was like a tidal wave through my life. It was like just a total freedom and weight lifted off my shoulder. By embracing honesty. Yeah, by embracing honesty. Yes, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And just doing what I like actually want to do and not feeling like I have to be dishonest to do it. Right. Food and cooking come up throughout the book. Is that something that you enjoy personally as a pastime? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was another big kind of Saturn return change was Emily brought a lot of cooking into my life. Like I used to eat out meals just all the time and she likes to cook all the time. So we kind of had this meet in the middle dance, but we really cook more than anything, which has been fantastic and and yeah you know i'm sure you'd imagine we have sizable bar here at home as well just from (laughs) all the experiences and this and that we 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 did actually have some schnapps and obstbasa that we brought back from germany but we we drank it all throughout (laughs) quarantine (laughs) as one should yeah indeed oh and i should mention my friend kelly thorne who uh, worked for Empire State South for a really long time. And she's kind of uh, Atlanta cocktail queen. She wrote a cocktail for the book and it is actually called Saturn Return 2. And if, in case anyone wants to know what it is, it is 1.5 ounces Campari, 0.5 peach liqueur, uh, dash celery bitters, 0.75 lemon juice, shake, strain over pebble ice and topped with a few splashes of quality Prosecco. 
by my friend Kelly Thorne. Yum. Yeah, it is so delicious too. So while we're talking about booze, do you want to talk at all about the idea of overconsumption and how that ends up playing out in Robert's life? It's complicated because I feel like this is something that I definitely still grapple with. Robert, he's doing the classic tour life thing where like, as Alice Cooper described it once, he's like, well, you know, you show up at the venue and you've got a couple hours before sound check. So you have a beer or two in between then, and then you got to have a beer with sound check. And then after sound check, you got to go to dinner and then you're going to have a beer or two at dinner. And then when you go to play a show, you know, you can't get on stage without a beer or two. And then after the show, everybody wants to hang out. So, you know, you're going to be drinking a bottle of tequila with everyone in that time. And then like, maybe you got to get on a plane or maybe you got to get in the van, you know, you sleep a little bit and you need another beer for that, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, I'm paraphrasing, but the point is, is just this, this crazy, constant social intoxicating cycle that just keeps happening. And um, I think the way that Robert deals with it is something that I was kind of having to recognize in my own life is that every interaction that you have with the people you care about all the time cannot always be surrounding being intoxicated because you just can't keep up with it. Like I I remember being in my early twenties, I would have drinks with like four different people in one day. And that's like something I could never do now because I would have to go to sleep, you know? Right. But uh, I think Robert, the character was still very much in the middle of that kind of lifestyle and cycle and making sure that he's showing up for people and showing up in whatever way he perceives himself as being or what he thinks that they think he should be. And um, I guess that is where the overconsumption happens because it's almost like he, he thinks they expect it of him. So he's just doing it, playing the part, which may even go back to what we were talking about with the service industry flirtation stuff too. Maybe just somebody kind of tricking or mugging themselves into believing that they need to be what someone else thinks they are or something. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found very appealing about the book is each chapter has pretty much two titles. It's good conductor or eyes on the eggs or hiding in plain sight or the singer, not the song. Was there intention behind that? Or did you just have too many ideas? (laughs) Well, I like the uh, Dr. Strangelove kind of approach with that, how it has a couple of titles and you could read it and decide how you felt about it. And like, it almost gives you an excuse to go back and look at the title and think about it more. And you can find each version of the title and why it may be that way. It's kind of like a a seesaw way to look at each chapter. It's very cool. And the creative titles carry over into the soundtrack. There's quite a bit going on with the soundtrack that relates directly back to the book, some parts, even lyrics. But there's also a couple of instrumental songs on there, right? Yeah. So I actually started there. Um, I started with the instrumentals. Uh, 
was kind of trying to lean into like a uh, if you if you will like a punk henry mancini or uh wallo schifrin kind of early vibe for like their film soundtracks mm. i just thought those kinds of moods and uh the way the song would develop would be very fitting for moments in the in the book if you could if you could imagine the book as a film Easily. and then yeah and then i guess i always love how like james bond movies have a have a theme song and and plenty of old movies as well back to the mancini like pink panther and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i wanted to write a theme song for the book and that's how i got the vague theme and then i just kind of decided i thought more about the soundtracks and i started to imagine like the soundtracks that pink floyd did and and david bowie uh, even queen and other bands and it's like well like i'm just gonna make some weirdo pop songs to go along with some of the ideas in this book it's a great idea and it does kind of change it into a little film in your head yeah i felt like i had some more agency to be like a little little strange and weird with it too being just the bass player and singer and omni like i wanted to kind of make my bill wyman solo album or Holger Cersei of Can solo album or I mean it's hard to say Paul McCartney because he's kind of such a his own <laughs> thing but you know what I mean there is like one piece of his puzzle that is like weird bass player album things that he does like McCartney too and stuff like that anyways I just kind of wanted to flex that classic weird bass player energy and put it into some music spin the globe put your finger down for the uh, percussion tracks? I actually use my friend's old uh, con organ. It's kind of like an old Wurlitzer fun maker. I've never actually heard of the brand until I uh, use this, but it's just C-O-N-N. And um, it's my friend uh, Chandler Rents. He's a, a fantastic drummer. He used to play in Snowden and he plays in a, plenty of bands around town and he's a coffee aficionado as well but we used to have a space with him and he had this organ in there and it just sounded so awesome because the speaker was really warm and really loud and just a little bit buzzy and in the pandemic when Omni wasn't really playing as much I just felt so inspired by the sound of the organ and the sound of the the drum machines that it had and I kind of wanted to just forego having to worry about percussional arrangements and just use the organ drum machine for the album which I know you know some people would have preferred to have regular drums but I thought it was kind of romantic in its own way and I love Suicide and plenty of bands that only do that and Young Marble Giants and et cetera, et cetera. so I tried to make something a little bit weird and you did. And I think it works really well for this circumstance. But I think I would also like to hear those songs performed one day with a full kit. Well, good. I actually was talking to Chandler just yesterday about 
possibly playing playing some shows at some point next year so maybe maybe that'll happen i'm planning on doing a solo show slash reading uh, in the brigantine in the back of argosy on october 17th i'll have books and records uh, available so the soundtrack is going to be printed on vinyl that's right atlanta author and musician philip frobo speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves, Frobos's new novel, vague enough to satisfy, is being released in conjunction with his first solo record of the same name. Frobos will perform a solo show and give a reading this Sunday at Arcasy in East Atlanta. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., big news from the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. I'll talk with their new music director, Natalie Stutzmann. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.